Hello, everybody. Welcome to our final NDISC seminar for the semester. I'm glad to see everybody here. Um, I'm delighted to have with us today our new football coach, <laughs> Brown Miller. Uh, she's going to move from the Ohio State to Notre Dame. Um, and believe it or not, he literally was named after Bear Bryant. This we've learned. So, you know, and given his stature, <laughs> hey, this could be the right thing. The right make, make me an offer. We'll see. Yeah, double your salary instantly. Um, he's currently at the Ohio State University after having positions at Harvard, University of Illinois, University of Rochester. He got his MA and PhD from Michigan and his BA from Chicago. He is the author of over 30 some odd articles in a huge variety of journals, Journal of Conflict Resolution, APSR, International Organization, Political Analysis, and tons more, as well as being the author of two books, only the Dead, the Persistence of War in the Modern Age, Oxford Press 2019, and Great Powers in the International System, uh, Cambridge University Press uh, 2012. So we're very pleased to have him here today to talk about systemic trends in warfare. Let's give him a big Notre Dame welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so... A, a couple of remarks. Uh, I'm going to try to fit a fair bit in, which means I'm going to try to uh, try to try to talk about a lot of stuff today. Um, so, if there's anything that I gloss over that you uh, that you didn't quite get, feel free to flag me down or you know ask in the Q and A about it. Um, most likely, it's it's me not explaining things very well, rather than rather than you not getting them. Um, and what else was I going to say? I think that's about it. Let me dive in. So I want to talk today a bit about systemic trends in warfare. And um, the, the, the top line message that I want you all to go away with is that we shouldn't believe that war is in decline. Um, <laughs> the, cheers are, the, the cheers are a little disturbing, but okay, we'll go with it. Um, and then I want to talk a bit about what we should believe about trends in warfare. Oh, I know what I was going to ask. Can everybody hear me? Can people on Zoom? Are we okay with the microphone and everything? All right, good. Um, next question is what we should believe about trends in warfare. And there things get kind of interesting. Um, one result that I can give you is that patterns of international order are associated with patterns of systemic conflict. Um, we don't really have a great understanding of why that's the case. We also don't really have a very good understanding of why wars, some wars are more escalatory than others. So um, I see this as sort of the beginning of what I hope to be a long sort of uh, research program where I explore a bunch of different dimensions of these questions along with my lab. Now, the first step is going to be untangling the relationship between hierarchy and war. And that's what I'll try to do in the last part of the talk today. So this uh, a talk about the decline of war has to start with Steven Pinker, uh, whose book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, really sort of, uh, you know, swept the popular press about 10 years ago. Everybody, you know, there are quotes from all sorts of people, Bob Jervis, Bill Gates, you know, saying that it's difficult to, difficult to deny that war is in decline. Um, well, I'm, I'm here to deny it. Um, but Pinker is a little bit... Um, squirrely when it comes to the question of whether these trends are irreversible. I want to just give you two quotes by way of example. The first one is, 
Well, no one with a statistical appreciation of history could possibly say that a war between great powers and developed countries will never happen again, right? So he's covered if it happens again. Um, on the other hand, he was asked in an interview um, how likely it is that major war is going to return. And he said, well, how likely is it that we're going to start throwing virgins into volcanoes to get good weather again? So presumably no one with a statistical appreciation of history can rule out throwing virgins into volcanoes uh, to get good weather again um, by, by transitivity. Um, so that aside, what are some of the reasons to be skeptical of this book as you're reading through it? Well, number one, he makes a big deal out of the fact that there haven't been any major power wars in the last 75 or so years. Um, but if you take a look at the record, and he references the long piece, John Lewis Gaddis's argument that the post-World uh, post War II world has been unusually stable. Um, wars like World War II only come, come around a couple times every century. So it's not actually all that unlikely that you would have a stretch of 75 years without one. In fact, uh, to, to see a statistically significant effect or decline of war, you'd have to wait about 150 years. Um, for, for without any major power wars. So one reason to be skeptical is that um, the long piece isn't actually all that unlikely. Another is that a lot of the graphs that are used in this debate, now, are there students out here who are taking data visualization classes? Oh, you definitely should. Because uh, one of the things you learn in data visualization classes is how to lie with data. And this is a good example of how to lie with data. This is a graph from the Wall Street Journal that shows, and you can see sort of a very steady decline over time, starting with the Korean War and going down to the present day, which looks great, um, except for the fact that uh, some of those wars are longer than others. Right? The Vietnam War, which is considerably more deadly than the Korean War, looks less deadly because it's spread out over a larger number of years. Right? So some of these graphs uh, that are used as evidence for the decline of war hypothesis um, don't really show what they purport to show. Worse, and this is what actually prompted me to start writing something about um, Pinker's book, because everything that I had read up to this point bothered me a bit, but this one really cheesed me off. Uh, he printed uh, on the left-hand side a graph of um, the frequency of wars in Europe over the, from 1400 to the present. And it was from, a, from an article, of a conference paper by Peter Brecke in 1999. Well, I dug up the conference paper. It wasn't online. I had to go through archive.org. And the first graph in the conference paper was the graph on the right, which showed conflicts per decade shooting up over time. And there was very little justification given in, in Pinker's book for just looking at Europe, except that Europe was one of the only areas where conflict went down during that time. So, oh, and finally, this is one of my favorites. He shows uh, this graph of war deaths per 100,000 people per year uh, to show that non-state societies are more deadly than state societies, okay? And it looks pretty convincing, right? Would you want to be up on the top of this where you've got 1,500 war deaths per 100,000 people per year? It's probably a pretty violent society, right? Well, in fact, it's a really small society. It's just a few dozen people. And variability is higher in smaller samples than it is in larger samples, right? 
So to illustrate this point, I made a graph of deaths uh, from poisoning per 100,000 people per year. And I broke it down by counties and by states. And as you can tell, people who live in counties are in much greater danger of dying from, po from poisoning than people who live in states, right? So there are a lot of reasons uh, to, uh, to be frustrated with this book. And I go through most of them in chapters two and three uh, of the book that Dan described, Only the Dead. Um, I, I, I walk through the flaws in the existing literature. And as I'm about to do, use more appropriate statistical tests to answer the question of whether war is in decline. So uh, let me get into what that looks like. First of all, what are we measuring? This is one of the points that Pinker makes that I think is really very worthwhile. Uh, he says, there's no single answer to what we should measure when we're trying to look at um, war over time. Because warlike can refer to how likely nations are to go to war, or it can refer to how many people are killed when they do. He gives an analogy of, you know, you have two villages. One has 100 arsonists with isolated forests, and the other one has two arsonists but connected forests. Which one has the worst arson problem? You could argue it either way, right? And he's got a point. So we need to study these things separately. So for measures of war, what I'm going to talk about today uh, are rate of conflict initiation, which is a measure of how likely nations are to go to war, and the lethality of war, which is how many people are killed when they do. I don't talk about, there's another chapter on the potency of causes of war. Um, it's a fun chapter, but it's a, a bit of a diversion from what we're talking about today, so I don't talk about it here. The lethality of war. Um, so the first thing to know about wars is they follow a power law distribution. And that is a distribution with an incredibly long tail. And what that means is that most wars are very, very small, you know, a thousand or so people. Um, but a few wars are really incredibly, unbelievably lethal, right? The distribution between the, the least lethal and the most lethal um, is, is remarkable. And this is a, um, the result of, a, of what's called a snowballing effect. Um, like World War II, World War I or the Arab Spring, right? Um, this is referred to sometimes as the Matthew effect from the, from the book of Matthew in the Bible, the passage that says the rich get richer, right? The idea is that deadly wars get deadlier, they snowball. So why does that matter? Well, from a statistical perspective, um, data that follow a power law distribution are a real pain. What I've done here is take a running mean of data drawn from a normal distribution with a mean of five and data drawn from a power law distribution with a mean of, looks like something like 42. Um, and as you can see, as you get to a sample of 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, the normally distributed data settle down to, you know, the, the sample mean settles down to something very, very close to the underlying mean, right? Or the sampling mean settles down to the sample mean. That doesn't happen with power law distributions, right? You can have samples of thousands and thousands of observations, and still your mean is way, way far away from, from the average. And if you've taken basic statistics, you probably saw um, a description of the central limit theorem 
that said the central limit theorem works if you've got at least 30 observations and the distribution of the data is more or less normal, right? This is that second caveat coming back to bite you. This distribution is really, really, really not normal. And as a result, um, it's very difficult to use standard. You can't just use sort of difference of means tests on data like this. So what do you do? You log the, the two um, axes of this graph, which shows probability of, of a more intense, uh, a war that's this intense or more on the y-axis and war intensity, which is battle deaths per 1,000 pooled population of the combatants on the x-axis. And a power law implies that you're gonna have a straight line in log-log space. So what you do is you compare the slopes of the two lines in log-log space to see which set of wars is more escalatory. If you have a more escalation-prone set of wars, what you will see is a shallower slope, meaning that it can get to higher levels of deadliness with the same probability. Um, a steeper slope means that you have a less escalation-prone conflict. This is a methodology worked out by Aaron Clauset and a couple of co-authors just in 2009, so relatively recent by statistical standards. And if you do that with the intensity of war, what you see is that the slopes before and after World War II, which is what Pinker argues is the major cut point, are about the same. And that's true for whatever cut point you pick. You know, I went through and tried at a variety of different cut points and they all look pretty much like this, right? So what you're seeing is that the escalation proneness of pre-World War II wars and post-World War II wars is about the same. And if you do a formal statistical test uh, of the slope coefficient uh, from the pre and post-World War II periods, if there were a real difference, you would see these two distributions separate, right? But they mostly overlap, telling you that there's no real difference. There's no, statistically speaking, there's no difference between the two distributions. Now that holds true. Other people use other measures of lethality of war. Some people use raw fatality numbers as a measure. Um, others use uh, battle deaths per 100,000 population worldwide. Doesn't matter which, which of those measures you use, the results still end up looking the same. So what we don't see is a change in the lethality of war over time one way or the other, okay? And that is bad. Because one of the things that this book project um, taught me is that I should be a lot more scared of wars than I already am. Um, uh, Nassim Taleb and his, uh, his co-author, Paulo Chirillo, referred to, in a piece that they wrote, referred to war as the mother of all power laws meaning that it is more escalatory than personal wealth, forest fire size, a whole bunch of other things that follow power law distributions. War is more, more escalatory than any of them, which is pretty alarming. If you think about it, we only have 95 or so wars in the last couple hundred years, according to the correlates of war definition. And one of them was World War I and one of them was World War II. So any new draw from that deck has a disturbingly high probability of becoming uh, disturbingly lethal. At least there's nothing in the statistics to tell us otherwise or to prove otherwise. 
Okay. And that to me is a pretty alarming conclusion. Um, and I would, I would urge you if you, if you don't want to sleep, um, read the end of chapter five of the book, which is probably the most depressing section I've ever written of anything in my life. Um, sort of like, you know, I really hoped I'd be able to tell you everything's okay, but this is actually really, really bad. Okay, um, what about rate of conflict initiation? How can we measure that? Well, it isn't really a perfect way to do it. The best way that I was able to come up with, since a rate is a, a quantity or amount of something measured by per unit of something else, right? we need to normalize um, the frequency of conflict initiation because the number of states in the international system keeps growing over time, right? So what I've done is I've taken a look at the number of conflict initiations divided by the number of opportunities for conflict. Now, the number of conflict initiations I've taken to be reciprocated uses of force by one state actor against another. Now, why reciprocated? Actually, because when I was doing it, when I wrote up an early draft of this as a paper, somebody interviewed Pinker about it and he responded and said, yeah, he's finding all these uses of force, but a lot of them are just the U.S. lobbing missiles into some country from offshore, and there's no real chance of escalation. I thought, okay, fair. Um, so I'll take a look at mil only militarized disputes in which there's reciprocation, right? And therefore the possibility of escalation. Um, I, look at it, I look at it a bunch of different ways, but this is the, the main, um, main measure that I settled on. Now, Pinker himself in Better Angels justifies the use of militarized interstate disputes by saying that they should be shaped by the same causes as the wars themselves and thus can serve as a plentiful surrogate for wars because we don't have very many wars to draw inferences from. Now, what about the denominator, the number of conflict opportunities? Um, what I look at is the number of politically relevant dyads in the international system. Uh, I can talk a bit about how that's measured, but um, the, the simplest way to do it is to assume that major powers can reach anybody and smaller powers can reach only their neighbors um, or countries, I think, within 40 miles by sea. That's kind of the standard way of doing it. Uh, Austin Carson, my co-author, and I wrote a paper in which we developed a more nuanced measure. And, uh, and I used our measure, but it's, that's, it's basically a function of power and distance um, in a nutshell. So, oh, and choosing a test is fun because these data are also kind of skewed. Um, so I ended up with using a permutation test, which those of you in statistics classes, you should get to know the permutation test. It's one of the coolest tests out there. Uh, it's just a neat little test that gives you incredibly powerful results and it's very easy to do. Um, and it, has, it involves minimal distributional requirements. Um, so these tests, tests looking for breaks in time series can be really flaky if you assume that they follow a particular distribution and they don't. So this one has the nice feature that it doesn't follow any, it doesn't have to rely on any of those distributional assumptions. So what's the good news? Well, this is about it. Um, if you take a look at the results, what you see is a decline in the rate of conflict initiation uh, right around 1950. Right. 
Um, and then another decline. Uh, well, actually, this, <laughs> this is a bit of an illusion because this is World War II. Um, but there is a drop in conflict initiation, again, right around the end of the 1990s. This is like literally the only good news in the whole book, so I'm going to linger on it for just a minute. Right? Uh, the bad news, well, actually, the, the good news does kind of resemble this kind of waning of war story. Right? The problem is, all the years before then showed steady increases in war in between the major world wars, right? You see a steady increase over time in the rate of conflict initiation right up until about the 1990s. So unfortunately, we can't really say that there's a secular decline in the rate of conflict initiation. And again, I'm, I'm glossing through a lot of this, but I'm happy to answer questions. Um, there are a bunch of different ways to poke at these results. I've tried as many as I could come up with, different operationalizations of conflict, different operationalizations of political relevance. Um, it's even robust to systematic undercounts of militarized disputes prior to World War II. You would have to miss something like 60% of the mids out there in order to, to show a, an actual decline. And if you add non-state and extra-systemic wars, uh, which Gary Gertz urged me to do early on when I, when I presented this paper, uh, what you get is this graph. It's not rates of conflict initiation because um, the number of politically relevant dyads is very difficult to operationalize in the case of non-state actors. I mean, India had 585 princely states. Should I count that as 585 potential wars that Britain could fight? Um, so you have to look at raw frequencies rather than um, rather than rates, but still you don't get a you don't get a decline over time. Okay, so we don't really see declines except at the very end of the time series in in any of these measures of war, right? The overall picture is not all that uplifting, but there's some interesting clues, right? One thing to notice is this period right here, which corresponds pretty closely to the concert of Europe, right? and this drop right here, which corresponds pretty closely to the end of the Cold War. These are probably not accidents, right? So one of the things that I wanted to take a look at toward the end of the book was the question of whether or not international order, periods of international order, line up with uh, lower rates of international conflict. Now, what do I mean by international order? I don't, it's important to emphasize, I don't just mean international institutions because uh, the concert of Europe was an international order that was very, very thinly institutionalized. What I mean is, a, and there are plenty of institutions that have nothing to do with order um, or with security. So what I mean is a multilateral security regime that involves one or more major powers and is legitimated by a set of principles that are potentially universal in scope. And I think most people who have a handle on international history can go through and come up with a, with a list that you know, pretty closely resembles other people's lists of, uh, of what those orders are. So. Uh, with the assistance of the kind assistance of funding from the Mershon Center, uh, I hired someone to go and code uh, international orders. And 
I took a look at rates of conflict initiation within them. Now you see uh, the dots are the average rates of conflict initiation uh, and the lines represent confidence intervals. There's a huge uh, set of confidence intervals in the league versus Germany, USSR, Japan, just because there's a very tiny number of cases, right? Um, but what you see overall, looking through this graph, is that periods of international order, periods where there's states in international order, tend to be more peaceful on the whole than other periods. Run through the but, yep, sorry. Uh, the Y, right, so... Concert of Europe um, is at the top. Then I have the post-concert uh, 19th century Europe prior to the Bismarckian order. Bismarck, the post-Bismarckian order under Wilhelm. League of Nations, uh, the states outside the League of Nations in the same time period. Western liberal order, um, relationships between states in the Western liberal order and other states. Uh, states in the communist Soviet communist order and uh, states in the Soviet communist order versus states outside of it. And then uh, other states, which we assume to be sort of in the, in the UN system, if anything. And then in the post-Cold War world, we have Western liberal and Western liberal versus other and other. Um, so one of the things about this is it is you know, heavily Western, mostly because that's where the data are. Um, and part of what we're doing in, down the road is trying to expand our, our scope, the scope of our investigation. I think most of the time, you know, the, the, the frustration with this result is that it doesn't really tell you much of anything, right? Um, it's sort of, you know, it's the kind of thing that you could run home with and be excited about if you, if you bought into the underpants gnomes theory of how regressions produce knowledge, right? You run the regression, you turn the crank, you get the numbers, and you know you, you've got an explanation. Um, but for the most part, regressions are re regression results are consistent with a variety of different explanations. So, for example, um, it might be that ends of major wars produce both uh, changes in international order and changes in conflict. Domestic politics could have an effect on both. Conflict could produce order. External threat could have an impact on both. I mean, there are a lot of ways that these could be related to one another, right? And they would all give you more or less the same correlation. So what does it make sense to do? Well, we're left with some big questions. The question that I asked at the beginning, what do patterns in conflict tell us about the future of conflict? Uh, you can say a couple of big things. One is war is not in decline. And it's, like I said, very important to know. Another is that in these data, periods where there's one international order seem to be better than periods in which there are no international orders or two or more international orders in terms of systemic peace, right? And I, and I put tentatively because we don't actually know why that happens. And that's what I'll talk about in a minute. So from a prediction point of view, you can say, you know, we've seen these things in the past, we may see them in the future, but we're not really sure until we have an explanation for why they happen. Right? Why is it that we say that we see this um, reduction in or a reduction in systemic conflict during periods of international order and what does make war more or less lethal? And from a policy perspective, if we want to know what we can do to make the world less warlike, we really need that explanatory chunk, 
right? We need to understand why it is these variables are related to each other because we can't just assume that we can turn the handle on the international order and, and get results, right? Until we understand what exactly the relationship is between order and conflict. So that's where my lab comes in. Um, these people are fantastic. If you see them on the market, you should hire them. Um, they're absolutely brilliant. And most of what follows is, is due to their um, sweat and inspiration. They're a fantastic group. And one of the great joys of my professional career has been getting to know them and work with them. So this is our roadmap for the next three years or so. Um, we want to try to figure out the logic that connects order and war, or the varieties of logics that connect order and war. We want to figure out whether there's a relationship between international order and domestic order. And we need better data for all of this. We have data on the Western liberal order during the Cold War and after the Cold War, but we're not satisfied because it's very binary. And the Western liberal order, in our opinion, is much more of a shades of gray sort of multidimensional thing. Um, we also want to take a look at what does make war more or less more or less lethal, and toward that end, we're, we're, we've um, gotten better measures of information and commitment problems as a first cut, but there's more sort of down the line. But if you look down the right-hand column, this is sort of a, a sample of the different projects that we have underway right now. I could show you my Trello board, but it would just like. All, all the colors would make you ill. Um, so I want to focus today on one of those projects, this project here on hierarchy and war. Now, I said we know surprisingly little, and that's exactly what I meant. We have a couple of different groups of people who study order and, and conflict, but they talk past each other a lot, and what they study leaves some big gaps. So the folks who study international order, for the most part, focus on politics within orders. As Charlie Glazer pointed out in a really nice article a couple of years ago, they say nothing about some really big issues like relations between orders, right? They just don't focus on that at all. Um, now, on the other hand, the quantitative conflict folks uh, look at membership in international institutions, which may or may not correspond to membership in international orders. And finally, one of the problems with the quantitative research that takes place is almost all at the dyadic level, and you just can't really generalize from dyadic findings to systemic outcomes. And I, I've given an example here of why that's the case. I've set up a simple model of the international system uh, in which democracy spreads over time, right? Across time here, you get a number of states democratized going from zero to 195. And what you see, I think that there are a few articles out there that argue that as democracy spreads, you should see the system become more peaceful. But that depends, right? In one scenario here, we have the most peripheral states in the international system, those with very few ties to other states, democratizing first. And their democratization has very little impact on systemic conflict. That's the lower line here. So you can get up to something like 50% of the states in the system democratized before you see any impact whatsoever. On the other hand, if the core states are the ones to democratize first, you see something like a linear relationship. 
So you have to be very careful when you're generalizing results from, from results at one level of aggregation to outcomes at another level. Now that's the sort of thing that a model like this does, is designed to help with. So what we've done is we've come up with a new systemic model that integrates micro-level processes of hierarchy and war to see how they interact with systemic level outcomes. Okay. Uh, this is an agent-based computational network model. Um, I think I've used all the right buzzwords um, to, to, to convey what it is. And it integrates two sort of sub-processes. There's a hierarchy process, which we borrowed from David Lake, which is essentially that you know, smaller states can, can contract with hierarchs for security. Um, and then there's a war model, which is the bargaining model of war. It's derived from the bargaining model of war uh, that Jim Fearon laid out in 1995. Um, and let me walk through, because they aren't exactly, exactly the same. There's some modifications. So the war process at the micro level, um, we start out with issues that are serious enough to fight over. Those just arise more or less at random in the model. Um, and the, they may or may not involve principles of political legitimacy, which we call ideology uh, for short, right? States may fight over territory or they might fight over resources or they might fight over leadership or they might fight over ideology, any number of other things. But things come up that they fight about. When those things arise, the states negotiate to resolve them. And if they can't come up with a negotiated solution, war is what follows. And finally, uncertainty about anything related to costs of war. And here I construe the model sort of more broadly than, than Firon did intentionally. Uh, you know, anything like about uh, capabilities, resolve, biases, personalities, moods, anything really that changes uh, your estimate of the cost of war or your certainty about the cost of war can increase the probability of war and make states hedge their demands. Right? So, the other process, hierarchy. Powerful states offer to provide asymmetric information. That is, you sign on to my hierarchy, and I will provide information to you that will help you drive better bargains with your competitors and reduce the cost of war. All for the low, low price of giving me bases on your territory. Uh, or whatever, right? The tribute that, that states pay can take any form. We're agnostic about the form, uh, we do say that cost is a function, we do assume that cost is a function of ideological distance. That's just saying that um, if you're Poland in 1960, it would be very costly for you to try to join NATO. Uh, and finally, the order's ideological ideal point is just a weighted sum of those of its members, um, which doesn't really come into play very much here. But I think the thing to emphasize and here's the operationalization for the math nerds in the, in the audience. The thing to emphasize is that this is very hard to map onto any particular kind of paradigmatic orientation. Um, I think international institutions, well, international institutions are generally associated with liberal IR theory. But when you look through the logic of um, hierarchy and war in this model, all of it makes sense from a purely realist perspective. One of the things that you're doing when you buy your, your membership in, uh, you know, in an international order is you're increasing your ability to drive harder bargains with your competitors and you're lowering the cost of war. 
right? So there's nothing about shared norms. There's nothing about any of the, um, you know, any of the other kinds of assumptions that have made realist balk in the past. Okay, so the reason this doesn't just sort of proceed in a very straightforward way, uh, the reason you get interesting non-intuitive results out of this is that some elements of the model show up in both of the sub-processes, right? And that's where you get complexity and emergent outcomes, um, which I'll be talking about in a second. So what does this look like when you run simulations? Well, this is what information provision looks like. The large states are the hierarchs, the smaller states are subordinate states. And as, uh, as hierarchs provide more and more information, what you see is a formation of international order. And you see a decrease in conflict within orders. It's a little bit trickier to see. The lines represent conflicts. We've jacked up the rate of conflict initiation so that you can actually see differences in rates of conflict. Um, but this shows us that information is working pretty much the way we expect it to in this model, right? More information provision drives more order formation, which then reduces conflict among members of, of the same order. Interestingly, when we see, when we looked for the effects of ideology, what we found was something of a surprise. We could not get um, increased ideological distance in the model, or an, sorry, an increased emphasis on ideology, a more ideological system. We could not make an ideological system more warlike. What happened is that ideology screens conflict, right? When states fight more and more over ideological issues, they tend to select themselves into international orders that are, that are more like their own existing ideology, right? So you should see democracies clustering with other democracies uh, and autocracies clustering with other autocracies, uh, not because they like each other, but because it makes pure, you know, rational sense for them to cluster in the same, uh, in the same order. And by virtue of clustering in the same order, uh, they fight with each other less. A third interesting feature is what happens when war costs go up. Uh, as war gets more and more expensive, you do see order start to form, and you see conflict initiation decline until you get to the point at which there's so little conflict that states ask themselves, hey, why am I paying for order in the first place? Right? If war is so unlikely to happen and so expensive that uh, no one's likely to fight it, why do I need to be in an international order? Okay, so what we find is that we can reproduce a lot of these sort of stylized facts that we have about international order with this model. We can't reproduce them all with the same mechanism, though. They come from different mechanisms within the overall conflict, uh, the overall um, uh, hierarchy and war model. Right now, one really cool thing, and this this is a quick plug for. Those of you who have heard of agent-based modeling and might be interested in doing it, one of the reasons to do this is sometimes you get unexpected results, right? These were the results we were looking for. These were the results we weren't looking for, right? One of them is we found that orders form after large wars, which historically tends to be the case. Um, we also found that the model exhibited balancing and bandwagoning behavior, and as Waltz predicted, balancing was more common. 
which was kind of a cool finding. Uh, we also found institutional persistence. That is, an international order, once it was created, and once it, once it had a fairly healthy membership, if its performance started to decline, the members would hang in beyond the point at which they wouldn't have signed up in the first place. Why do they do that? Because there's more value to them in remaining in the international order, given that other states are already in the international order. Right, so you get a nice, neat story about institutional persistence that fits with some of the findings in the literature. You also find this, this really intriguing effect, sort of a thermostat effect, uh, it, that happens if international order is available in gradations. That is, you don't just sign on or not sign on, but you can sign up for a little bit, you know, you can pay a lower rate and get a smaller amount of international order or a smaller amount of information and protection. Right. And what you find is that under those circumstances, states will regulate systemic conflict by buying more or less order as the international environment gets more or less hostile. And as a result, you get this weird tendency for the rate of conflict initiation to plateau, even though the drivers of conflict may be changing, right? Because the system regulates itself. And finally, uh, under some circumstances, you get hierarchs dropping out of their own orders, which uh, I, I presented at a government agency a couple of years ago, and everybody laughed and said, gee, I can't imagine that ever happening. Um, but, uh, but worthwhile thing to notice. So that's the model. And wow, I'm, I'm actually almost on time. I'm, I'm kind of shocked. I didn't think I was going to get through this in anything like a reasonable amount of time. A few policy relevant observations or at least my attempts uh, based on these preliminary findings. First of all, and I, I can't underscore this enough, um, war is a whole lot more dangerous than just about anybody realizes today. Uh, it hasn't gotten less dangerous. And right now, we don't really know how to make it less dangerous. And that's really, really bad. Like I'm, I was invited to uh, spend a year uh, working with a group of people next year, next academic year, who are trying to understand uh, where escalation comes from. And they offered to bring me to Oslo, Norway, so it was, a, it was an easy sell. But even if it hadn't been in Oslo, uh, I would have felt a, a moral obligation to try to figure something out about this question. Um, observation number two. From what I've been able to ascertain, um, which is, you know, getting outside my area a little bit, NATO's operational focus tends to be on um, what they call third horizon threats, right? Distant, uh, low probability threats that may or may not snowball. And so they've adopted a, a, a strategy of, of risk management and enhancing resilience. Um, that's worthwhile. But it also leads to the third observation, which is that um, as relevant as NATO is as a military alliance, it may be even more important for peace as the core of the Western liberal order, or as the security arm of the Western liberal order. Because the order that it in part provides um, enhances resilience and uh, creates a more passive, a more peaceful environment within which those risks can emerge. 
Okay. Um, fourth, now this has sort of been intriguing when it stems from what I said about states selecting themselves into orders as, um, as ideological conflict becomes more intense. Um, the idea that, that integration leads to internal pacification and external conflict, right? Um, which is one that you hear every once in a while. Uh, Norbert Elias, for example, in the civilizing process makes this argument, might have the causation backward, right? Multiple competing orders form because expected conflict drives up the demand for order, right? So put more simply, order creates, or sorry, conflict creates order, multiple orders don't create conflict. So with that in mind, I think we should be more worried about the things that provoke order formation than we are about the, the formation of alternative orders per se. Following up on that, a Chinese international order might not be a bad thing. Um, interestingly, given some of the, um, some of the results from a separate paper that we have that I haven't really talked about very much, uh, it may not be something that's immediately recognizable to Westerners as a form of international order. Um, a lot of the traditions of order in Chinese thought uh, don't conform to the same logic of hierarchy and conflict that I just laid out. Right? And so figuring out ultimately our goal down the line is to come up with models of Chinese order as well and then see how they interact uh, with, with models of, of hierarchy and order. Uh, next observation, yeah, this, we, we unfortunately don't have the kind of policy handle that we would like to have in order to, to make the world more secure and more peaceful, at least not as far as um, international order is concerned. You know, if someone came to me and said, all right, you've, you've done this work on international order and conflict, or you're at the beginning of all this work, what can you tell us about what our optimal grand strategy should be from the point of view of, of producing world peace. And it's difficult to say uh, at this point because there's so much left to untangle as far as the logic and empirics are concerned. Um, the good news is we're working on it. The bad news is that um, I wrote here, there's a dearth of cross-fertilization of people in the policy world. That's not entirely true, um, but we'd like more. And then the last observation is um, coming up with a strategy that would fulfill those criteria might involve some very difficult choices. So for example, if I said to you, really from the point of view of world peace, the best thing to do would be to enhance the parts of the liberal international order that China likes and drop the parts that China doesn't like and get China firmly embedded in the liberal international order. Well, a lot of people in the US would find that problematic because there are parts of the liberal international order that they really care about uh, and on dimensions on which China is deeply problematic. And you would lose a lot of the investment of the American public and, and uh, a lot of decision makers, I think if you were to strip back the liberal international order in such a way that you could really get China deeply embedded in it, right? The, the upshot is that we do care about some things more than we care about peace. 
And as long as we continue to care about some things more than we care about peace, we're going to continue to have war. All right. I'll leave us with uh, a quote from Jim Mattis's summary of the 2018 National Defense Strategy, uh, where he points out that um, the decay of order is, a, is now a bigger threat than terrorism for U.S. national security. And I, I want to say I agree. All right. Thank you for your patience. And I look forward to questions and comments. Thank you. Mike Dash up front. Uh, great. Uh, Bear, thanks very much. Very interesting project. Holy smokes. What, what did you say, Scott? That one slide you for the next three years or five years? Three years is, <laughs> is what we're committed to doing. Yeah. Well, if you get it done in three years, my, my hat is off. <laughs> I have one question, and depending upon your answer to the one question, I may have a second question. I was not clear in my own mind exactly what you mean by international order. Um, I mean, the, you know, the obvious thing, I think, in common usage would be to say simply the absence of war. I don't think that's exactly what you mean, but mm -hmm. I'm not sure uh, what it is that, that you mean. Right. What, what, is, what exactly is an order? So let me see if I can get back to the easily get back to the page where I put the definition up. I zip past it pretty quickly. Um, so this was this is the definition that we were using when we laid out that um, that coding. It's act, it's mostly borrowed from Henry Kissinger's book, World Order. Um, he's the one who specified one or more major powers legitimated by a set of principles, so on and so forth. And I think the rest of what he was describing was um, basically what Jervis describes as security regimes. So I've I've compacted his definition a little bit. The, so your the the simulations then were were showing us um, states moving more closely together. That's the formation right. of order. Right. And the primary uh, mechanism for that is the increasing uh, commonality of preferences. No. Among the no. What they're doing is they're signing on when they change color from white to the color of whatever whatever hierarchy they are, and they move toward that hierarchy, what they're doing is they're signing on to the contractual hierarchical arrangement that Lake describes in his book. So the, the short, so this is a broad definition of order that's meant to cover, um, you know, hierarchical order, um, you know, various forms of Chinese order, like it's meant to be a very broad definition. And then when we focus in on hierarchy and order, we're looking specifically at orders that are more like the Western liberal order. So in those simulations, when those states, oh, we have to sit through all this, don't we? Um, now I regret putting all those little animations in there. Um, but when you see those clusters form, right, what you're seeing is that all of a sudden, these states are becoming part of the order. They're saying, okay, the, the information that you're providing is now so valuable that I will sign on to your hierarchical order. Uh, I will pay tribute, and in response, in return, I will get more information about the states that I'm fighting and do a better job of negotiating with them. Okay, so... 
order then, you know, I, I see the, or I think I understand, you know, the sort of modern mm -hmm. uh, implication of order, you know, measured in terms of institutionalization um, and things like that. But then we go back to the, uh, you know, the early order that you start out with, the concert of Europe, mm -hmm. which you point out is uh, loosely right. know, or thinly, I think was your word, right. um, institutionalized. Right. Um, and, you know, so I'm, I, I'm wondering what, what exactly is the, the basis of order there, aside from shared preferences? you know, about uh, international politics. That's a fantastic point. This model wouldn't really cover the concert, um, primarily for that reason. Also because this model envisions an order that exists uh, between a hierarchy and, subs and uh, um, subsidiary states. The concert was an order among great powers, right? And uh, it's, a, it's a fundamentally different logic. It might be more closely approximated. We are working now on a model of Chinese order from, the, from um, what's, what's often called the tributary system, which is sort of a misleading um, sort of summary of, of what it did. But during a long period in Chinese history where uh, China was thought to control uh, an international order in its immediate neighborhood. And that was an order based much more on preferences uh, than on capabilities and information. So we're trying to tease out, it's an excellent point, that we're trying to tease out different um, uh, forms of order and then understand how they can relate to each other. So that, that leads me to my second question. I won't say much about it because I'm guessing Gene uh, will, uh, will hop in on this. Um, but it, it, it seems to me that the alternative to hierarchy as a source of order is uh, a spontaneous uh, mechanism for order. Um, and that's, you know, again, why I'm, I'm trying to uh, puzzle out exactly uh, what the basis of order is. For hierarchy, it's pretty clear um, that, you know, it's the capabilities or the distribution of capabilities mm -hmm. within the, uh, the system. Right. Um, but it, as you said, again, going back to the concert of Europe, you have examples uh, of uh, non-hierarchical orders. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that leads me to wonder what is the basis of order in a non-hierarchical system? Can Concert we, of Europe, it, you know, it seemed to me was a common preference for no more Napoleons and right. you know, for no more French revolutions, right. uh, which seems very different than yep. the hierarchical logic of orders in, you know, late and you know, right. more modern treatments of uh, order. So for a spontaneous order, um, you know, I think there are different degrees of of spontaneity or <laughs> uh, or disorder within order. Um, one of the one of the systems that we're looking at is the Utrecht system, which you know involves very little order uh, within certain bounds, right? You know that the, there was a, the idea that as long as one state doesn't get too powerful, we don't need to worry about any kind of you know, any forming any kind of order, anything goes 
uh, in any other distribution of states. So that's definitely a, you know, a form of order as well. Um, that's something that Randy Schweller has dragged me kicking and screaming into agreeing with. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, it's another one that's, that's on our list. So a two finger from Kat, then more. Thank you for your talk. Um, going off of Professor Desch's question, uh, you know, your definition of an order does allow for multiple big powers and all your simulations have just had one hierarchy. Right. Do you think that the principles governing those simulations hold true for multiple big power scenarios or would the simulations themselves look vastly different? No, well, the simulation, this simulation actually has three major powers. Uh, one order. Sorry? In one order? No, in three separate orders. But if there are multiple big powers within one order, how would that change? Um, you mean if there are more powers than, than orders? If there are multiple big powers yeah. within the same order? Right. Currently, we don't, in, this, in this set of simulations, we don't allow that because we don't see it happening. Um, but that's definitely something that, you know, when we when we get to talking about the concert system, for example, is something that we want to try to figure out because, um, and we've talked about this a bit, uh, th there was a debate, some debate, um, I know Jervis picked up on this in his, uh, in his security regimes piece, about whether or not there was a separate order between the US and the Soviet Union during the Cold War after, uh, after Cuba, and I very much believe there was. Um, but it's not something that we are modeling. I'm very curious to see if it's if it's something that shows up in our empirical measures when we get onto that side of the project. But right now, like I said, this is just sort of our first step into figuring all this out. And right now, we don't have the possibility for multiple states to to uh, multiple big states to join the same order. Uh, thank you for coming in, sir. Kind of in a similar vein. Um, you discussed in your observations that Chinese international order might not necessarily be a bad thing. I was curious as to kind of what that would look like in terms of, A, the kind of differences in influence and the spread of influence that we've seen of China in continents like Africa. Um, B, if that, what that would look like in terms of economic dominance and kind of see if you can see that happening in the next stretch, especially with the responses we've seen recently with China's action in the South China Sea. Wow, okay. Um, let me see if I can easily get to the, uh, whoops, I cannot unshare my screen. I'm just gonna have to go through all these ugly, actually, wait a minute. I think I can do this. Um, so I don't have a good answer for you now. This is, we are at the very beginning of the, um, how do I stop this? Maybe, huh, well, that did it. Um, we're just at the very beginning of this study, but I can show you, uh, here we go. Now can I share? Yeah, so um, what we're doing at this point is looking into different understandings of Chinese order, both order as, a, um, as an outcome and order as a process. 
uh, and we're sort of breaking down um, sort of who the who the main thinkers are in each of these areas, how they understand order and what the implications of order are. And then if you look at order as an outcome, um, looking at sort of the ordering principle, the state of nature, so on and so forth. So the um, the the short answer to your question, and unfortunately I don't have a longer one right now, is that's really going to depend on China. The, the, the degree to which China favors one conceptualization of order over another because they all have fundamentally different logics. Um, in some cases, you know, the relationships with Africa and Latin America would be relatively innocuous, right? In others, um, they may represent the kind of, you know, long, long-term, um, you know, slow preference transformation that uh, existed throughout the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s. Um, it's difficult to say. Um, also, I'll, I'll beg out of this by not being a China person. Um, <laughs> that's, this is maybe part of the process, part of the, uh, the, the lab's work that I'm least involved with. But, um, but this is just sort of an overview of, of how we're trying to get a handle on um, Chinese understandings of order. Great, Eugene. Um, so it was interesting, but I think really hard for at least me to wrap my head around. Um, so all this conversation about order, I was particularly struck if you're in the showing slides uh, uh, business uh, right now by your observation three at the end. Because yeah. um, I don't know, I ever want to think about I mean, the concept of order doesn't make much sense to me. I think about practical little things more. Mm. And um, so two parts to this. The first is, as you were talking to Mike, I was trying to figure out your conception of order. And I felt like you were shoehorning things into this kind of, well, into the Furon framework that says conflict comes from information asymmetry. And, and, um, mm -hmm. Understanding what the other guy's intent is. And, um, and so you were trying to make order, you were trying to then make um, Lake's conception of hierarchy as about information provision in some way, like that language of information. And I was having lots of trouble mapping that onto not just the concert of Europe, sure. but onto NATO. Like it seems to me, if you think NATO is an important piece of order, right. United States isn't providing any information to anybody. Right. Um, or, you know, the even more ordered parts of international politics, I think, is people talk about like the Western Hemisphere. Like, the, does the Rio Pact, is the US providing information in a meaningful way? Right. The US is providing military force. Right. And I, I just, I just, I'm having trouble understanding. And then that observation three, you were saying, well, NATO is not about military force. It's about some other, you know, something else about NATO is more important. Right. And I just, I just, I didn't understand. <laughs> got it. Got it. So um, I think this is, I always hesitate to, to talk about sort of Firon's model. Um, I think people tend to have, um, you know, <laughs> tend not to be fans. Um, and 
And I think it's this is something that I glossed on very, very briefly when I was when I was uh, talking about the bargaining model. We really borrowed the bargaining model uh, to use as a model of negotiation and conflict, not to use necessarily as um, you know as a um, as something that's literally true. And I think the 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 form of the model is what's of interest to us, right? I think there are a lot of different things that can go into estimates of the cost of war. And I think NATO does um, significantly alter. One of, one of the mechanisms by which hierarchs um, produce peace is by manipulating the cost of war, which is exactly what you said, right? Projecting force. They have the option in this model of either uh, altering the cost of war or providing information or both. Um, and so... I think in the in the very broadest sense, um, you know, this is this is a model in which um, states negotiate negotiate over things. Um, they push their luck, right? Sometimes they screw up, and um, if they sign on to a hierarchy, the hierarchy helps them screw up less, um, and and also gives them a negotiating advantage. And if those are the only things that you believe about the way the world works, the model still works, right? Despite all of the information and war costs and rational actor and so on and so forth, claptrap, right? Um, we even go to, it, it's funny, I mean, I, I found that, um, you know, political science audiences are, are mixed about the rational choice assumption. Audiences from outside political science are not mixed. Um, <laughs> and they, they are not fans at all. They're like, you know, there's a discipline out there called psychology. You should explore it. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I did adopt the Furon model with, with some hesitation, but like from a modeling perspective, it's really doing something fairly basic and to my mind, unobjectionable that, that gets lost because Furon talks about it as a rationalist model, Right. Um, bargaining models, and I put this down here at the bottom, bargaining models are not inherently rational choice models. They're models of choice that are most often employed by rationalists. And I think that um, that tends to, to um, color people's perceptions of them. I could give one, a wit one way or the other about rationality. Um, I, just, I just think it's important to have a model that takes into account the fact that, that states try to get stuff and sometimes they screw up and they go to war. I mean, I don't think I have any problem with the rationality assumption in the right. model or anything. I don't think that, I just, I, I'm not, like I have trouble seeing any order at all when I look at the world or what order is. And if you're telling me order is some kind of exchange of mm -hmm. tribute for information, mm -hmm. talk about NATO. What's the tribute? I haven't, I haven't enjoyed any tribute as far as I know. And What's the you got some great basing rights. And what's the, but what good are the bases? Like, why do I enjoy the bases? The bases are what allows me to defend other countries. It's what, it's what allows me to risk my life and my treasure to benefit someone else. Well, if you don't want to project force, then the bases aren't much good to you, right? But the assumption is that sometimes we do want to project force. To benefit others again. So are we just great altruists? I mean, is that what I mean? What is the word? Like, how is how does 
So maybe not, I mean, I was picking on NATO because I didn't understand your observation right, right. three, mm-hmm. um, but any other, you know, what, whatever other Whatever other order you want, I want to see it in terms, I want to match your definition of order to this idea of exchange within the models that comes from late or wherever else. I mean, I just, I, the world doesn't look to me like what you're talking about. Like, this seems like an intellectual. Like there's any, like there's any sort, any form of tribute that, uh, that states pay or to be part of the liberal. The other direction. I don't see either no. side of the exchange. I, I mean, you know, I, one of the things that we've thought about is trying to take a look, trying to get a handle on preference falsification in the UN empirically so that we can try to get a sense of, you know, which states really don't want to go along with the US, but do as essentially part of the price of, um, you know, as as one person wrote to me on a note one time in the model UN, uh, the price of being your puppet, uh, which I took kind of personally, but um, but you know the, the, I think there are a variety of different um, ways in which the, the tribute can take a lot of different forms. But that's a really interesting question. Um, the the paper as we've laid it out now really is purely about. Like, you know, by the time we got done laying out the model and the implications, we were at the word limit. So so we're going to be launching sort of further investigations after that. But um, but I'll definitely include Show Me the Tribute. Yeah, I'd like to do a two-finger on that point. Um, so you place a lot of emphasis on information. Mm-hmm. And your model showed that, you know, states were flocking around the big green states. Mm-hmm. Information. I'm curious about... What information is it? Sort of your question. What exactly is on tap that creates an order that's worth it for a state to say, come join my order? Mm-hmm. So I like to put it a little sarcastically. Imagine here's the headline: Japan surrenders, Germany surrenders, US opens information store. Mm-hmm. What do you, what's on tap at the information store? And by the way, the price of entry into the store is you join my order. Right. Right. Is that what happens? And a, a, another counter-argument to the information story is. A lot of orders are created in punctuated times, right? Right after the hegemonic war, right? Typically, yep. very type story. Yeah. So, if information seems to be a, a, a slower process, right? It's something that accretes. And if, if causation is really hegemonic war, mm-hmm. then does the information still have a role? Well, we when we find that um, orders form after hegemonic wars in this model, it really is because of the cost of conflict. Um, it's because states' estimate of the cost of conflict goes up. They realize, gee, it would really pay for me to sign on with someone who can, you know, prevent conflict and can it can increase other states' cost of conflict. Um, so the the conflict cost mechanism is primarily what drives the post-war, um, you know, post post-war order formation. You're right, um, but. It's an interesting question. What information? Okay. If you, you know, just yep. for the future, imagine a little case study in which you painted yep. out some country coming to join the order because of information flow. Right. right. So your prediction of your model is that, that would be the case. Right. So just show me some examples. Yep. Um, more. So did you have a tour? Show me the potential cost of conflict has gone up in Asia in the last 30 years compared to what it was in 1990. So. 
How so? How has the price of conflict gone up? The potential cost of conflict, our estimate yeah. of the cost of a war in Asia. Right. I think in 1990, the cost of a war in Asia would have been trivial. And now there's a serious mm, conventional talking war. about. Right. <laughs> yeah. I was I was thinking the, the risk of uh, bringing the Soviets in went away. Oh, yeah, right. But I mean, but that lowers the but that lowers the cost of war, you know, um, pretty dramatically after 1985. Morris, did you have a two or a one? Yeah, I think that's I'd say it's a two, but it's probably one and a half. So it builds a little bit on, on Eugene's question about the hierarchy, the hierarchy perspective, and all this, and specifically the gains that the hierarchy gets out of it. And I might have missed it when you described the model. Um, probably not. <laughs> but, but so as I. Um, as I understand, the model is set up as so hierarchy and order understand as a contractual relationship, right? Yes. But then the model talks really only about one side of the contract, right? But but it's a contract, so we need two people to agree to this, right? So the model, right. as I understand it, models when the smaller states want to join an offer to be part of an order, but right. it doesn't really seem to consider that there are many cases in which the offer is not going to be there, right? Right. So it doesn't seem like to be like like hierarchical orders are just sort of a you want to join the bandwagon, jump on whoever you are, right? But that doesn't really seem to be how it's, how it's the case. And so my question is, do you think there's a way in which that can be integrated into the model? And do you maybe share my suspicion? And I, I assume you just, right, that, that if that was modeled in there, that things, things would look pretty differently, right? That pirates don't actually want everybody and only in very select cases want to extend those. Right. Um, it's, so I, I thought you were going to um, ask about a completely different question, which is, uh, you know, what what's the interesting action going on inside the hierarchy? Like, does the hierarchy ever decide, no, I don't want to hold up my end of the commitment? And yeah, that just doesn't happen. Um, this is this is hellishly complicated as it is. This, we took this just neat little toy model. We thought, you know, gee, a couple of months, we'll be able to figure out everything that's going on in it. Um, we've learned. Uh, we, we submitted it for publication almost three years to the day after we first started laying it out. So, um, so the, you're right that there isn't, right now, the way it's laid out, there isn't any way for a hierarchy to say, no, you can't join. But if there are states that, um, that it doesn't want to join and that, that um, how do I put this? There are a variety of states for which the, the cost of joining is too high, right? And um, that's the mechanism by which hierarchs keep out the states that they don't want in, is by pricing themselves out of their security market. Um, now, you know, it's possible in a highly conflictual environment with, with low costs of hierarchy that um, everyone would sign on to an order and hierarchs would, um, you know, would, would allow in everybody who joins. Um, and there isn't any provision from keeping them out under those circumstances. Um, but under those circumstances, presumably they'd make bank with whatever tribute they're, they're getting in form of policy adjustment or basis or, or whatever. Um, so I guess, I guess the question comes back to you, like why would they turn away a paying customer? It's like because there's costs involved if you extend your empire, right? There's I mean, there's a reason for why not, not all empires. Oh, I see what you mean. Wherever you want to. Right? Gotcha. You don't gotcha. want those guys to be part of your team because they cause you a bunch of trouble. Like, kick them off the bench and only have to. Right. That's interesting. Um, 
um, I like that. Um, so we are looking into sort of extensions and variations on this model and trying to flesh out the logic a little bit more. Um, uh, so uh, like you could draw from the optimal state size literature um, to, to get at that. Um, yeah, and something else, actually another modification that we've been considering is allowing, you know, right now there's, you know, there is power in the model, but there's, it, it hardly exists, right? I mean, it, you're, you're either a great power or you're not. That's the only extent to which power is there. Um, one of the modifications that we're considering is allowing power to vary. And then essentially as states become more powerful, their costs of, they, they can charge less for security and attract more, uh, more states. And that might help to serve a similar, or that might, might work well um, in conjunction with that idea of sort of reaching out uh, some sort of limit and, and starting to be concerned about overextension. Um, Kevin had a two finger, then we have Brian and Alex. That's and... a different question. Pardon? That's an entirely different thing. I thought I saw two fingers. Okay, then you're third. Um, Ryan, Alex, Kevin, and there might be time for another question. So if anybody's burning, raise your hand. Thank you. Um, Really appreciate you being here and talking with us today. Um, this is a topic that I really uh, enjoy. Um, I had a question on something you cover in uh, underside measures of war. Um, you say relations outside of borders are among the most conflict prone, or at least um, two or more different international orders. Um, so I think this is kind of answered a little bit before with the. Uh, this slide question. Oh, I, no, I know what you're talking about. Uh, this one. There we go. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was wondering what kind of influence uh, state lethality has over conflict initiation powers uh, between orders as a whole. I'm, I'm sorry, I missed the uh, question. What kind of influence does state lethality have over the initiation of conflict between states? Or state lethality? State lethality. So like, I guess how, how lethal a state has the potential to be. Like mili military capabilities. But it's military or nuclear capability. Um, right. and what kind of influence that has over the initiation? Right. Um, minimal. Uh, just because the way the model works and you can kind of understand the logic like if you know if you and i have relatively equal power and we want you know some issue comes up we sort of say well let's divide the pie about 50 50 right but there's still going to be there's going to be some uncertainty i have some uncertainty about your level of capabilities your your you know how much you could inflict damage on me so maybe i'll offer you 55% right something along those lines but what's driving the probability of conflict isn't the division of the pie, it's my level of uncertainty, right? So now let's assume that I'm five times as powerful you, as you are, right? And, uh, and I think, well, I can get away with only offering you one sixth of the pie, but I'm still not quite sure how powerful you are. So I'm gonna hedge my bet a little bit, but I'm still in the same situation of, you know, the, the uncertainty about my estimate of your, your 
capabilities is what's driving, you know, I'm, I'm trying to hedge my, well, I'm trying to push my luck a little bit. Let's say I'm risking a little bit of war in order, you know, the, the only way that I can avoid war entirely is to give you the whole pie. And I don't want to do that. And I, I know I can get more than 50, 50, because you're not going to fight for 50, 50 if our capabilities are six to one. So the question is how much do I push my luck? Right. And it turns out you push your luck about the same, at the same degree, either way. And you run about the same risk of war either way. What changes is the amount of pie that you get as a result, right? Like if I'm six times as powerful as you, on average, I can get about six times as much pie as you do out of our negotiations. But I'm still going to slip up and go to war with you once in a while. And it's entirely because um, war is a function of miscalculation rather than, you know, rather than purely uh, relative capabilities. Does that make sense? You say that its capacity to be lethal, like we know how lethal they can be. Right. Um, except for example, mutually assured destruction. That well, that okay. I was going to say that's the, the the caveat is that the amount of pain that you inflict uh, is going to be is, is the the pain is is less painful than the pie is good, right? If you're able to inflict so much harm on me. That um, that basically it doesn't make sense for me to push my luck at all. Um, then you know wh whoever then then you don't get conflict as an outcome, right? And that was why you saw when I increased the cost of war that that one graph where I increased the cost of war over time, you saw states forming orders, but you also saw them fighting less. That was because war was so incredibly costly that they just didn't want to fight anymore. War, war wasn't worthwhile. So yes, once you get over a certain threshold where the amount of damage that you conflict is way out of proportion to any possible benefit from, from conflict, um, that does have an impact on conflict. Um, Kevin and Alex, if you could ask your questions now together, we only have about four minutes left. Um, that'd be great. So get your ideas out and then share it back with us. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, my question is um, basically, you know, one of the fun, like one of the underlying aspects of this project is pretty much sort of like not really an assumption, but it is there that the Chinese are just different. Like our our existing history of European international orders don't really help us understand how the Chinese are going to behave. And I get that some of that's based off of just Chinese history and what you see from in their international orders. But I wonder how valid is that thinking about, you know, the orders that they're making today and the orders they're making in the future. Hmm. And I guess, you know, what I feel uncomfortable with is sort of like the idea that it's their history that's going to impact, yeah. you know, what they're going to do tomorrow. Yep. And, you know, just for example, like Errol Henderson's book is that, sure, IR theory is Eurocentric, it's built up for European history, but it actually does a pretty good job of explaining African wars in the post-colonial period. Right. I just wonder after you... Yeah. Alex wants back in too, I think. Okay. Oh, okay. So yeah, um, just a few things about that. So I think this may be a cheap shot because it seems like this is but at least when I look at pre modern one of the things I've noticed that basically these states have very limited things that they're fighting. So it turns out in persistent power symmetry, very rational short-term subordinates to get into institutionalized status relationships. I'm sorry, say that again. Institutionalized status relationships. Okay. Um, basically higher. Um, yep. Reinforced through things like uh, cultural norms, mm -hmm. 
confusion and interviews, et cetera, especially getting into that hierarchy can actually help you legitimate your rule domestically. Yep. Nice. But that really suggests to me that this is really about distance and preferences that affects both order formation and conflict initiation. So mm -hmm. it appears that uh, distance preferences is the one that's really driving the form, which mm -hmm. is basically that thing that you were showing on the left. Yes. Uh, aside order formation and and I think to add even more complexity, complexity to this, uh, at least again, exactly working from modern Asia, it seems like the distance of preferences is endogenous to uh, the degree to which these actors think that they share corporate uh, identity, et cetera. Yep. So just throwing a bunch of thoughts out there. Uh, and the degree to which they share cultural identity is a function of China, China's attempt to convince them that they share cultural identity. That is, you have neatly described the model that we're working on right now for the, for the tribute system. Or sometimes the secretary yep. states convince themselves that yep. they are like China, right? Yes. To uh, emulation, et cetera, et cetera, of their political system. Yep. So just a bunch of thoughts, random thoughts. No, no, I, it, it is not a cheap, sheet at all, cheap shot at all. And I agree with it so much that we're already working on it. So awesome. that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, as, far, as far as the question of, you know, how valid, how much how much does a uh, tributary order tell us about about Chinese order today? Um, it's a great question. Um, and I think the tributary order is one of the things we're going to be looking at is what are the environments to which each of these forms of order is suited? Right. And the tributary order was well suited to uh, an environment in which China had a massive amount of influence over much smaller neighbors. Right. And that's not the kind of world that they necessarily find themselves in today. Um, Weirdly enough, it may bear more of a resemblance to, you know, some other like the, you know, the, the concert of Europe, maybe we haven't, we don't know yet, but we'll, you know, we want to take a look at that. Um, and to some extent to kind of the, um, the to the extent that um, order existed in the interwar period, there's a great book by uh, Warren Cohen called Empire Without Tears that does a nice job of documenting the extent to which American financial muscle um, helped to order interstate relations in the interwar period, independent of the League of Nations. Um, and so I think there are probably, you know, other examples of that kind of, and, and did it specifically through kind of preference alteration um, dynamics. So we're, we're not at all wedded to this, you know, simple notion that this is the way China did things in 1300, therefore this is the way that China will do things now. Um, but we want to, we, by the same token, we don't want to go completely the other side and say hierarchical order is, you know, it's the 21st century hierarchical order is the way to go. Right. So we're, do, we're trying to get a handle on what the range of options are before we can try to get, you know, get a better sense of where we think China's going, but it's a great point. Thanks very much. It's perfectly six o'clock. So let's, uh. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.